Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. So good to see your beautiful faces. It's good to see the people that are outside. Nancy, Tar, and Brett, you guys are like doing like a picnic outside. That looks really amazing. Good to see everyone that's just gathered here today preparing for this. It's like the best time of the year, a gift that's given to us, and we have the ability to just take it in and launch us into the new year. And I'm looking at the faces and I'm looking at the chats and it's like from Mexico to North of Colorado, North Dakota, <laughs> down to Louisiana, Africa, Holland, Germany, the UK, Israel. It's like, wow, it's just incredible. And um, the new year has started in Israel. It's not Rosh Hashanah yet, but the new year cycle is on. It was the first day of school and you really feel it. It's like Rosh Hashanah is right around the corner and the academic year is perfectly aligned with the holidays. And, you know, we start the new school year right in line with the new biblical year. And I just want to share some of these pictures with you because our youngest is now in first grade. Ken got on the bus by herself. That's Ken right there. And that's it. That was our that was our last first day at first grade. My my kids are growing up. And that was just unbelievably cute. But she has her older sister, Emuna, with her. And of course, Emuna took incredible care of her. Do you have the picture of Emuna with the funny ears on her head? Emuna now went into the fifth grade. And there they are together. And she like held her hand and walked her into first grade. It was just, um, Tehila spent most of that morning crying. <laughs> she was like in tears. Our baby is in first grade. Just like, like a midlife crisis. <laughs> that morning that was it. That just knocked her over. And uh, but Baruch Hashem, we have Ebuna that took control of things and got Henda safety, even though Tehila was totally incapacitated with the emotional, overwhelming reality that our youngest is now in first grade and on her way to a new existence for the next 12 years in school. And so, friends, it's just important to remember to enjoy the little things in life because one day we're going to realize the little things, they're really the big things. And so it's a big deal. All of our families getting ready to go back to school now. And so with the new year coming and all of us from around the world, I want to take this opportunity uh, to lift up a prayer together. One people, one heart, one land from this place. Hashem. Thank you for today. Thank you for giving us this time to prepare for this coming year. Help us pull the arrow of life back and help us aim it towards you. Give us the vision. Give us the dream. Give us the desire to rise up this year and lift our loved ones up around us. Thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for choosing us to represent this vision in the world and live out the vision of the prophets as we prepare for these holy days together. Bless this fellowship with health, with strength, with joy and prosperity this year, a sweet good year for all of us, a year filled with Torah and goodness, love and connection, courage and truth. Shine your light into our lives. Shine your light into everyone that is live here today. Bless everyone that will be tuning in later. Help us hear your calling and walk through the valley of the shadow of death with no fear at all, because you are our shepherd. Amen. All right, my friends. Um, one of the members of the fellowship asked me if I could do a quick review. They said it was very helpful last year. And last year, what I did was I gave the five Fs for going into the new year. And this year, I actually have six Fs. And so it's a great cheat sheet for life. 
We're going to kick it off with just a short introduction, just to sort of put that away to know that I gave you that gift. And then we can really move on to like the deep meat and potatoes of the fellowship. Um, so if you do have your journals out, this is a great time to get these things written down. Um, it's worth writing down. It's worth thinking about. And I actually have some friends that printed them out and stuck them on their refrigerator because it's something that's worthwhile reviewing all the time, but especially before the new year, when you're trying to kind of craft a vision of how you want to like the dominoes are stopping. Now we have a chance to stop the domino effect and then start a new domino effect as we go into this new year. So what are the F's? The first F is faith. How's my faith? How's my Torah study? Am I growing as a person? Second F, family. How is my family doing? My marriage, my children, my parents, my siblings. What do I want that to look like in this upcoming year? Fitness. How do I feel physically? How is my diet? Am I taking care of my body? You know, I heard one time someone said that um, people have many wishes in the world. Sick people have one wish just to be healthy. So fitness is key. It's really the fundamentals. If you don't have your health, we don't have anything. Finances. How are your finances? Are you giving enough charity? Am I spending enough time that I, is my life aligned? Is it, am I spending more than I'm making? Am I living within my means? Am I living like a righteous life? Am I just being wise with the finances that Hashem has blessed me with? So faith, family, fitness, finance, five, my friends, my fellowship, my community. What am I doing around them? How are they doing? How are the people around me doing? Can I be doing more for my community? So those are the five Fs. But, and the truth is, if you get those five Fs down, you're really pretty much going to win the game of life. But there is this sixth F that I want to add today. And that is the F of fun. F-U-N. It's like fun. That's not a word. That's not even a word in Hebrew. Did you know that there's no word for fun in Hebrew? Because that's not a biblical idea to just have fun. So I want to translate fun in a very specific way to make it holy. There are things in life that we do that bring us joy. And they're actually gifts that are given to us. These unique things that we, for some mysterious reason, really love to do. And we get enjoyment out of them. They are things that bring us joy. And I want you to think about those things because maybe it's one thing in particular. You know, for some, maybe it's an early morning walk, a quiet cup of coffee, a good concert at night, a date night with your husband or wife. Maybe it's painting, playing music, writing, creating. Maybe it's animals, a dog, a horse, building something, gardening. For Tahila, it's gardening. She loves gardening. She loves gardening. And if Tahila had a garden and a library, she pretty much has all the fun that she needs in the world. And when she's out in the garden, I just know that's when she's doing good. But you know what happens? There's so many things to do in life. Six kids and work and a house and responsibilities that like gardening doesn't always make it onto like the, the to-do list of that day. So when she carves out time in her life and she's able to transcend the tyranny of the urgent and the musts, you know, the must that we have to do, I know she's doing good. And so what are the things that make your life enjoyable? Enjoyable means they bring us joy. And if you think about them before this new year, think about how you can get more of those enjoyable things into your life. It's a mitzvah to be joyful. And every mitzvah is an avoda. Every mitzvah is a service. It's work. 
It's work to be joyful because otherwise the world will just sweep you away. Mitzvah gedolaliot besimcha. It's a big mitzvah to be joyful. So what do you have to think of in your day? Don't just think about your fitness and your finances. Think about fun. Think about the things that actually just bring you joy for the sake of joy. They're just things that Hashem put in your heart that make you happy. So think about how we can get more of that joy in our year. And here's the truth. Most people, they don't ever take time to reflect. Every day just goes into the next. They don't even have Shabbat. They're just living their life. And you know, Abraham Lincoln famously said, if I had six hours to cut down a tree, I would spend the first four sharpening the ax. And so, so many of us, we're just like cutting away at life, fighting through the brush, making a path through the jungle. But this time of year, it's auspicious for sharpening the ax, for thinking about taking time out of our lives and thinking about how do we want to live this year, sharpening the ax before we start cutting into the next year. And in some ways, it's one of the purposes of our fellowship. This time and gathering is to like think about the higher things of life. And then launch into our wink, better prepared, more aligned, stronger in our faith, with more clear vision. And so faith, family, fitness, finance, friends, fun. Six Fs. If you think about those six things going into your next year, you will have a better year guaranteed than if you just fumble into Sunday as you did into Monday, as you did into Tuesday, and you just let the domino effects of life continue to fall. And so that is my first little tidbit gift to kick off the fellowship. And so now what I want to do is, first of all, thank you for that question. And of course, all of you are always invited to shoot me WhatsApps and sometimes I'll answer personally, but sometimes I'll feel like, you know, that's really valuable. I'm going to share that with the whole fellowship. And so of course you can reach me on WhatsApp, email, any way you'd like. But with that, I would love to introduce my best friend, my learning partner, my chavruta, my brother-in-arms, partner on the farm, Ari Abramowitz. He's here with us today. Ari, the inspiration. Here you are, buddy. Let's go. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I haven't seen you. We've been so busy. It's like hard to be know, in this world. I know. Good to You've see been you on gone fellowship. For so though. long. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. It's funny we see each other this way. Um, and it's good to see everybody here. Now, I didn't realize that first day pictures were inbounds on this fellowship. So as you're talking, I'm frantically sending Tabitha picture. Can you include this? Can you include this? Because while I don't have any of Shiloh, I do have of Dvash. And I can't believe I'm actually at that place in my life where I have that picture of my child going for the first day to her kindergarten. It's just so overwhelming. And uh, as you know, I don't share anything on social media ever. But... I do uh, want to share with you guys the first day of Dvash is gone. Tabitha, were you able to get it out? Oh, oh, is that yummy? Her gone is called Gan Zohar. Gan is like kindergarten. And, uh, and it was great. It was much more difficult for me than it was for her. The way her teacher explained it as she got there, and, and we actually saw this part at the beginning, and all the kids are showing up and they're shy and sort of meek and nervous on their first day. Some of them are crying. And she's one by one going up to them and saying, here, it's okay. Come play with me. Come play with me. And bringing them all to make them feel comfortable and welcoming them. And then she went up to Shane and she said, uh, Mama, I think uh, it's time for you to go. You know, all the kids are crying and holding onto their mother's leg. And she's greeting everybody. And it was just, uh, it made me very proud. I wish I could have been as put together as her. 
But uh, anyways, and then we took Shiloh, and today was Shiloh's first day. Anyways, I'm not going to take up Jeremy's whole fellowship talking about Dvash and Shiloh, but thank you for letting me share that with you. And it's really good to see all of you. You know, just like Jeremy said, as these times are approaching, on Rosh Hashanah, the high holidays, these are times that are really filled with hope and joy and optimism. And so I wanted to just share this short message with you about this, because if there's anyone that can connect with these emotions in the truest, realest way, it's really all of you. And I'll tell you why I feel this way. So this past Shabbat, I was at my sister Miriam's house. And as you know, you see here, the I, I print up the prayer request that Ardell puts together. And then I was reading through them like I always do. And while I was reading your, your requests, um, and as you know, we pray for you regularly. This Shabbat, I feel like I may have just been in a more vulnerable place, a more emotional place, maybe a more open place than usual. But as I was immersing myself in the messages which so many of you share, um, really, you like you share them bravely and generously. Um, and as you know, for those of you that read these, these are filled with very real, very real challenges and pain. Um, you're sharing those places in your life that you really feel like you need the prayers the most. As I was reading through it and praying through it, it was really entering my heart in a way that felt unique, you know, and it was beautiful, um, but it was also quite painful. I feel like I was taking on your, your pain more than usual. And I don't regret that. I'm grateful for that. I, you know, it, I was sharing in your distress more than usual, and it was, it was, um, it was difficult. But I was happy because I really believe that those prayers, the more they come from a place in which we truly share each other's pain, we're able to then share each other's joy. And when we're able to to take on each other's uh, emotions in in a real way, a healthy way, well, I think those prayers are are the most powerful. And so in this week's very beautiful and very intense Torah portion, we see that the stakes are high when you decide to serve Hashem in truth. You know, when, when we do, the blessings are very, very great, beyond our wildest dreams. But the curses, too, are very real when we know the right way and we don't take it. The, the, the curses, we've seen them, I mean, as we were reading through it, it's like just the highlights or the dark, the darkest points throughout Jewish history, all were manifesting themselves perfectly described in this week's Torah portion of the part of the curses. Now, to get to the part of the blessings, let's focus on that for a moment, because Rabbi Shalom Rosner points out a beautiful point in the Torah's language when discussing the blessings. And it made me think of all of you. So chapter 28, uh, verse 2, it tells us, And all these blessings will, call, will come upon you and reach you. So he points out that it would have made much more sense for the words to be arranged in a different order. Right? It would have made more sense to say that the blessings will reach you, and then when they reach you, then they'll come upon you. They'll reach you and then come upon you. But he explains that often people reach out for blessings, things that are outside of themselves that they don't have, things that they feel like they really need that they don't have. And often they see things that um, that other people have and they pray for those things. But the wording in that verse, he explains, is that first we should see the blessings that already have come upon us. Blessings that are often not clearly blessings at all, at least when you look at them from the naked eye. 
But when we're approaching life from the perspective of knowing that everything that happens to us is from God and everything is good, everything is a blessing, particularly those things that are the hardest and most painful, when we reach out, when we reach out and we prayerfully seek the eyes to see those hidden blessings and all of that pain, then they come upon us. When we reach out in trust and in faith to see those blessings, when we beseech Hashem for the eyes to see the blessings and the things that are the hardest for us to even imagine that there could be blessings within them, then they come upon us. Then we're able to see them and we're able to experience them in the most beautiful way imaginable, even while it's playing out. And so when, when reading through this, you know, this very powerful, holy booklet of broken hearts and prayers, that's exactly what I saw. Everything. You know, so many of you would be justified in feeling like victims and complaining. I know that I have taken that route before, but that is not what I experienced in the, in the prayers and in the blessings and the messages that you sent in those holy words. I saw faith and trust and hope and positivity. I saw the sweetest, holiest people in the world seeking and seeing the beauty and the spiritual opportunity in their pain without denying it, without putting on a show and acting like that. No, the pain is real. The tears are real. The grief is real. But the spiritual opportunity and the blessing is still there. And I see all of you seeking that. And so, so I just I want to bless all of you. Uh, bless all of us that as we approach Rosh Hashanah, we will continue to be able to really coronate Hashem as the king in our lives, the kind king, the compassionate king, the loving king who runs the world better than we ever could and better than we could ever understand and whose orchestration of our lives we receive with love and trust and faith. May this coming year, my friends, be a year of sweetness and revealed good. Revealed good, because everything is good, but not everything is sweet and not everything is revealed. This should be a year of sweetness and revealed good, a year where all of our prayers will be answered in the best way possible, a year when our tears will be dried up and our tears will be transformed to laughter and joy. Amen. Amen. Thank, thank you, you so much, Ari. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. And so, all right, my friends. So here's what we're going to do. Today, we're really going to go deep. I have, um, I'm trying to like connect all of the dots because this Torah portion, Kitavo, is always read right before Rosh Hashanah. It's always like leading up to that time. And what can you help? What can you do? It says, and when you come into the land, you just can't help but feel that we're not just talking about the Torah portion of coming into the physical land of Israel, but it's when you come into the promise of your life. And for some mysterious reason, the first mitzvah of this Torah portion is the mitzvah of Bikurim, the mitzvah of the first fruits offering. And so just a little bit of background about what that is. The mitzvah of Bikurim starts when a farmer inside the land of Israel, it's specifically inside the land, would go out to his field and he would find the first budding fruits. You could have seen this a while ago, let's say with our pomegranates. They like just started to come out. And what you do is you tie a reed around them and you verbally declare, these are my first fruits. I see them. I'm there. They're, now these are the first fruits. And this mitzvah also only applies to the seven species in the land of Israel. So that's, you know, wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. And the first fruits, when they actually come to ripe, 
they're brought to the temple, specifically on Shavuot. And you have really a window from Shavuot until Hanukkah. But that's why Shavuot is called the festival of the Chag Asif, the harvest festival, the first fruits of your work. And so Chag Bikurim, it's like the first fruits festival. And so, okay, that's the mitzvah. And it's the first one. As you come into the land, this is the one. But then as you're continuing, like preparing for Rosh Hashanah, the creation of the world, that let there be light moment, the creation of man, the Midrash says something remarkable about the creation of the world. And it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Torah. And what is the beginning of the Torah? In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Bereshit in Hebrew is translated as in the beginning. But the Midrash says, no, there's another way to read that word. And Bereshit, either with Reshit or for Reshit, God created heaven and earth. And it says, what does that mean? For Reshit. Oh, Reshit, that means Israel. The whole world was created for Israel to be chosen, for a destiny to unfold, to illuminate all of humanity. The second Reshit is the Torah. All of the universe and all of the cosmos were created so God could communicate the holy way to live in the world. It was for Reshit, for the Torah, that all of creation was made. And then the sages of Israel say, there's one more Reshit, the first fruits. Rashid is the beginning. For the mitzvah of Bikurim, somehow the mitzvah of Bikurim, the mitzvah of the first fruits, this commandment is the expression of everything that God wanted to do in this world for us when he created the world itself. It's the key. And that's why the Torah portion says, Kitavo, when you come into the promised land, this is what I want you to do. You want to unlock the promise of Israel? Here's the key. Bikurim is so essential, it's apparently the guide to the ultimate good life, the purpose for which everything was created, the guide to living out the purpose of creation. And so that's what I want to explore today, because that's a pretty big topic. And if we are going into the creation itself, this is the greatest way to prepare, to go really big. And so the good life. So let's talk about that. Philosophers throughout history have all talked about what is the good life. And so one of the most beautiful in my mind, when we talk about, you know, there's like a Judeo uh, tradition, there's a Christian tradition, there's a Greek tradition, and then somehow it's like Western civilization is sort of the fusion of the biblical tradition and the Greek tradition, and that's really what's created Western civilization. And Western civilization up until now is the greatest civilization that we've come up with so far. And so let's go back to the basics. Aristotle, remarkably aligned with the Bible on this issue, says that a good life can be summed up with one word, and he calls it eudaimonia. That's the ultimate. And eudaimonia is usually translated as happiness. If you type it into Google, if you read it, it's happiness. Like the ultimate good life is if a person is happy, great. That's the ultimate. He's just to, to be happy. But that's not what Aristotle said. Actually, that's really far from what he was aiming at. Eudaimonia is Greek for daimon, means soul. And you means good. So eudaimonia is a state where you are being a good soul. To live according to virtue. The idea that a good, happy, healthy, happy life is inextricably connected to a moral life. That's actually what the founding fathers of America meant in the United States Declaration of Independence. When they said life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, 
That's the happiness they were talking about. Happiness from living a good, worthy, meaningful, noble life. And that is 100% in line with the Bible. Look at what the book of Psalms says. The very first verse, Psalm verse 1, chapter 1, happy is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's like, who is the happy man? He's the one that stayed away from the wicked. <laughs> he is the one that's living a good life. He's like following God's ways. And just in case, chapter 106, verse 3 really says it beautifully. Happy are those who uphold justice, who practice righteousness at all times. So, of course, King David existed, you know, well before Aristotle, but he's giving us the keys here. It's like you want actual happiness live, uphold justice, live with righteousness, and you'll see that you'll be better. You'll be happier. You'll be stronger. Your life will be blessed. You'll It'll just make you flourish. Excellent. And then you look at the world today and you're like, hmm, well, 21st century, 2023, we're better off, better informed, healthier and freer than any previous generation. But the life satisfaction of young men has absolutely plummeted. Richard Wilkinson wrote a book called The Spirit Level, and I'm only quoting this because Rabbi Jonathan Sachs quoted him. So I learned this from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, but here's the quote. It is a remarkable paradox that at the pinnacle of human material and technical achievement, we find ourselves anxiety-ridden, prone to depression, worried about how others see us, unsure of our friendship, driven to consume, and with little or no community life. It's like depressing. It's like, how did that happen? What's going on here? We're in the, I mean, the most money the world. I mean, you go to a, a hotel, a simple hotel in Israel. You eat like kings didn't eat the way that hotels in Israel give you food. 200 years ago, kings did not eat the, the diversity, the amount. We are living in the most unbelievable time. And why is everyone upset? What's going on? What's happening here? And I think what happened is that Instead of living a little bit like the founding fathers of America that defined that happiness that was connected to, you know, liberty and freedom and nobility and character, it became a life of pursuit of life, liberty, and pleasure. And in philosophic terms, it went from a eudaimonic happiness to a hedonic happiness, to a happiness that is just based on physical pleasure. And in modern culture today, Western secular civilization hedonism prevails it's like why did that happen it's like maybe it was better for the economy maybe it's an easier path in the immediate and people can't see far enough down the road maybe it's an easier sell it's like tell people the ultimate in life is to buy more stuff and die with more toys and so now in secular civilization it's like the race is on who has the newest phone who has the newest car who has the most stuff a former director of general motors research lab said like this Advertising is the organized creation of dissatisfaction. And I thought that's just a great summary of advertisements and the advertising industry. Let's make people feel unsatisfied and always wanting more. And that way we'll make more sales. And that's really the heart of the advertising industry. And so hedonic happiness is achieved through kind of experiences of pleasure, comfort, maximize pleasure, minimize pain. That's, that's where you're going to find happiness. And Rabbi Sachs says it's like a new culture. 
a new religion has been built around this false idea. You get retail therapy. You're not feeling good? Go out and buy stuff. You'll feel better. Salvation by shopping. That needs to be a bumper sticker. <laughs> it's like, that's what the world is at right now. And so, um, you know, what that looks like? Someone sent me this meme and I can't help but share, but I'm like a society that's built around that. This is what the health czars around the world look like in the most secular countries in the world. You have the Democrats in America right now, Belgium, Britain, Canada. Those are the people that are giving public health advice to their countries. That's what that society is going to look like. And so what kind of leadership? You're going to end up spending money that you don't have on things that you don't need for a happiness that won't last. And you're going to end up unhealthy. And so what's going on here? It's like, if you want to try to fulfill that happiness, you're going to need constant stimulation. You know, it's like a momentary feeling of pleasurable sensation. It's like getting what you want only temporarily satisfies that desire. Almost immediately, you're going to want to find a new thing to desire. But what we're talking about, what the ultimate goal is, is to live a joyful life. What does that look like? It's like, in order to live a joyful life, you have to view yourself over time. That's why all of the Torah is based around a calendar, based around a year, based around a week. It allows us to stop, see ourselves in time, look back in time, what was good, what was bad, look forward in time. How do I want to be better? How do I want my life to look? That's how I'll build a joyful life. This is a story. It's a true story. My son Akiva came up to me. This is when he was 15 years old. And he's like, Abba, do you know what I started doing? I started asking myself, what would my 25-year-old self tell me to do now? I'm 15. What would make him happy with my decisions now? Would he tell me to go play video games? No. He would tell me to go work out. He would tell me to get good grades so that when I'm 25, I'm going to be in a much better position. I'm like, wow, 15 years old. How did you learn that? That is a brilliant, that's exactly how to live a joyful life. It's to see ourselves over an expanse of time. And that's why Torah, prayer is not so much about trying to change God, but changing ourselves to align ourselves with what God has in store for us in our life. And when you think about prayer and you think about the mitzvah of Bikurim, it's the first liturgy in the Torah. It's the first time where God gives us a prayer book and says, when you bring the first offerings, I want you to offer up this prayer to me. And he actually writes the first siddur, the first prayer book. You should think about that. It's, it's kind of amazing because I have a lot of Christian friends and they say to me, it just seems unbiblical to pray from a prayer book. The Jews, they pray from words that other people wrote. It seems inauthentic. You're reading words that prophets wrote, that, that King David wrote. But like, what about prayer from your heart? But here in the mitzvah of Bikurim, you actually see it's really biblical. It is um, the way of giving the first fruit offering. And there are really two modes of prayer. And that's really important. One is to reach out to God in order to change reality. And there's a time and a place for that. And maybe you just want to pour your heart out to God. But the second tefillah is a Hebrew word that's called lehit palel. And lehit palel is a reflexive verb. Lehit labesh means to get myself dressed. Lehit palel means I'm doing something to myself in order to channel something from God. I'm not trying to change God. God is good. God is wise. 
I'm the one that needs help here. I want to align myself with his will. And so Abraham Joshua Heschel has a beautiful quote. He says it like this. Prayer may not save us, but prayer may make us worthy of being saved. And so the first prayer in the Hebrew Bible that we're commanded to say as our liturgy in the temple also happened to become the most famous liturgy in all of Jewish history. It's literally the backbone of the Haggadah that we say in the Passover Seder. The same liturgy in the temple for the first fruits is the liturgy of the Exodus from Egypt that we celebrate every Passover. And so it's like, wow, it's the ultimate of creation. It's the first liturgy. It is the backbone of the Passover Seder, the first fruits offering or at Shavuot. It's like this first fruits offering is interconnected with so many things. It stands as like a hub that so many spokes come out of. If we get to the heart of it, then we're really getting in some ways to the heart of the Torah itself through the first fruits offering, through the mitzvah of Bikurim. So what I want to do now is I actually want to go into the prayer itself into the mitzvah of Bikurim. We understood what it was. We take our first fruits, we bring it to the temple. But now let's look at the prayer because through this prayer, it will give us a window into life, into the way that God wants us to live. It's the first prayer he gave us. So let's see what he says. So you open up to Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five. And this is the beginning of the prayer. This is what you say when you offer your first fruits. An Aramean sought to destroy my forefather, Arami Oved Avi. And he went down to Egypt and sojourned there with a small number of people. And there he became a great, mighty, and numerous nation. So look at what happens here. We start off the prayer with our history. It's like the Bikurim offering is the ultimate in individual achievement. You worked, you planted, you watered, you tended. If it was a vineyard, you like took the every year. There's another act you have to do to finally get that vine ready. You've cut off the A9. You've set it up. You're getting it all prepared. You made it. You actually have the fruits of your labor. It is the ultimate in the individual success. You made it. And then what do you do? You immediately go back to your forefathers. You immediately recall family. And after your family, talk about your nation. And all of that is nestled within God. So imagine that you have four. You have the individual, you have family, you have nation, and you have God. I want to juxtapose that to modern society, where how do they do it in modern society right now? You have race, gender, sexuality, and climate. What's going to make a better society? It's obvious that someone that's rooted in family, rooted in their history, is going to be living a much more um, full life with roots that go down and branches that can go out. All right, let's look at the next verse. Chapter 26, verses 6 and 7. And the Egyptian treated us cruelly and afflicted us, and they imposed hard labor upon us. So we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toll, toil and our oppression. So someone is living in Eretz Israel in 2023 and they're going out to the land and they're planting a vineyard. 
by the way, Ari just planted a new vineyard before this new year. I, I'll, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to, it's a surprise. I'm not going to talk about it. It's a it's cool a surprise. surprise. I have a whole thing planned and prepared. You cannot I got say it. anything. I just saying. And so imagine that Ari will but be. But I do want to say one thing. Okay. Okay. It doesn't matter. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait. You go ahead, Jeremy. You're rocking. You're doing good. I'm just saying, like, I, I try to imagine it is like you'd be taking your first fruits after, you know, you're waiting for three years for the fourth year. You have your first fruits from that season. Finally, you get to take them. And then what do you do? You say, I want you to know so many years ago, our fathers were slaves in Egypt. It's like so deep in history. The people of Israel are the keepers of time because we actually live with all of our history embedded within the moment that we live in now. We're all a part of that story. And our job is to invite the world to join that story. It's like some people just live so detached. Yes. Can I ask you a question? I'm sorry if I'm going to derail you, but it's a real question I have. Okay. When the first fruits starts to blossom, right, then you tie a little ribbon to them. So you know that when they mature and they're ready to be eaten, you bring them to the temple. But if we're really serious and honest and authentic and true about our anticipation that the temple will be built on in any moment, then shouldn't we be doing that now? Nowadays, shouldn't we tie a ribbon to it so that when it matures by then, if we really hope and pray and believe the temple will be built, we can bring that? Because if we don't, it means that we don't really believe that the temple is going to be built any moment in our days. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, a that's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the answer is that once you actually tie that ribbon around that fruit, that fruit must go to the temple. But what are you going to do? What if the temple isn't built? Then you would have a holy fruit that has no home. So I think hmm. we wait for the temple to be built and then we can dedicate <clears throat> the fruit to the temple. It's not really a lack of faith. It's just an honor to not making something holy to God without the ability to actually fulfill on that commitment. Um, okay. Thank you. That, that, all right. So now back to the idea. Here we are. You know, we're, it's, um, you know, someone told me over Shabbat, the mitzvah of Bikurim is actually the meeting point of the God of history and the God of nature. And they meet at the mitzvah of Bikurim. Because, you know, imagine the Jews that lived in Egypt. They saw God acting in history, changing the world, revelations at Sinai, changing consciousness, moving people toward their destiny. But once you're already in Israel, you're living now a very natural cycle. You're very connected to nature. Rains need to come. You pray for the rains. The crops are being raised. And now it's like, no, no, no. The mitzvah of Bikurim is never forgetting that the God of nature is the God of history. And we are his witness that we are living that out. But what happens is when we bring that final fruits of our labor, we go all the way back and connect ourselves to the story of Israel, to the story of redemption. And we say, when we cried out to Hashem, Hashem heard us. And then what happens? A small chosen family has finally arrived in the land of Israel. And so that's talk about, see. so it's not enough to just see yourself across time. Like that's what my son Akiva was saying. Who am I going to be when I'm 25? I want to see myself across time. No, no, no. It's not just enough when you're 15 to ask yourself what you're going to be like when you're 25. You can do that. That's amazing. But the Torah is saying, no, 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 something much deeper. It's saying, I want you to see yourself not only across 
your life, but I want you to see yourself across the entire life of all of the nation of Israel. That's who you actually are. And that's where real joy comes from, knowing where we are, where we come from, where we're going. Modern secular Israel is a great example of that. They know we came from slavery, but their memory blacks out at about Auschwitz. Like modern secular Israel started at the Holocaust. And the Torah is saying, no, that's not the right way to start. Not your own like nation's history, not your country's history. Go all the way back to your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way back to Egypt. See yourself as a part of that story and the achievement of living in the land and just bringing fruits to the temple will bring you the most joy. You don't need a new iPhone. You don't need a new car. You will experience Simcha on the highest level. And so now 26 verses 8 and 9, the next sentence in the first prayer of the Bible. Can we put it up on the screen, please? Chapter 26, verses 8 and 9. And he brought us to this place, and he gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And the Lord brought us out from Egypt with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, with great awe and with signs and wonder. It's like, what are we saying here? It's like, man, we had it hard. We were born into slavery. We don't take anything for granted. You know, it's like, there's no entitlement. There's only gratitude. And this is really important because today's generation, I'm, I see it even with my own kids and I try hard to push against it. It's like an entitled generation. It's like that meme that everyone talks about that hard times create strong men, strong times, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, entitled men. It's like we're living in a very blessed time and it's created entitled uh, young men. But your capacity for gratitude is inversely proportional to your sense of entitlement. Meaning the more entitled you feel, you, the less you can experience gratitude. And it's like satisfaction with what we have is what we're looking for, not hunger for what we don't have. And the God of history meets the God of nature teaching us, you could have been born in slavery. Your father was. Remember where you are now and appreciate everything that you have. And so chapter 26, verse 10. And now behold, I have brought the first fruit of the ground which you or Lord have given to me. It's like after all the struggles, not only of my own toil in my own hands, the struggles of all of my ancestors that brought me to where I am now. Sigmund Freud, the famous you know, doctor of the spirit, said, one day in retrospect, the years of struggle will strike you as the most beautiful. And so what the Torah is teaching us here is like, remember those hard times, because then when you get to the point that you're offering your first fruits, those first fruits are so delicious because of those hard times. And not just our hard times, but remember all of the hard times that it took to bring us to where we are today. Mm -hmm. Then you shall rejoice with all the good that the Lord your God has granted you in your household. That's when you're going to experience specific simcha. And you see, simcha, you can't really get confused in Hebrew. Simcha, it is the same letters as Mashiach. It's the same letters, meaning that happiness is clearly tied to virtue 
tied to holiness, tied to goodness, tied to nobility, tied to good things. It's like, you want to experience simcha? This is the way. And so, you know, it says that in the liturgy of Rosh Hashanah, it says that God is bochen levavot, that he is the judger, judger of hearts. Like no one really knows anyone. No one really knows what's in someone's heart. Someone could look very pious, and then all of a sudden, a scandal of some rabbi comes out, and you're like, what? That rabbi did that, but he looks so pious. Or sometimes, someone could just look like a really simple dude wearing sandals, walking around Israel. And I have found that those simple people just wearing sandals, walking around Israel, happen to be some of the most righteous people that I've ever met. Just the simple shepherds of Israel that are walking around in sandals out in the mountains are the most dedicated, the most committed, the most God conscious. So you don't ever know what's happening in someone's heart, but what does it really mean? It means more than that. It doesn't just mean that God knows the heart, so don't worry about it. In some ways, there is a foolproof mechanism towards the service of God. To feel simcha, it's like a it's like a divine instrument that you can't trick. Meaning most people that are believers are happier people. That's statistical, that's studies, that's undeniable. Secular people are less happy than religious people. But if you're religious, in order to be happy, it doesn't work. If you go and you visit someone that's sick, you're going to walk away feeling better that you've helped your friend, you've taken a little bit of the pain that they were experiencing away from them just by distracting them, by showing them some love. You're going to walk away and you're going to feel better. But if you go to your friend in order to make yourself feel better, it doesn't work. It's like a foolproof. It's like God judges the heart. It has to be authentic. There's like an authenticator here in the happiness. There's an authenticator there in the service of God. And what does that look like? There is an ancient phrase from Baal Shem Tov. And it says, Ha'emuna, hi ha'dvekut, hi ha'shrina. Faith is the attachment to God, is the cleaving to God, is the oneness with God. Faith is the oneness, is the shechina, like an equal sign. Faith equals attachment to God. That equals the shechina. What does that actually mean? It's like a code. You have to like, it's like a puzzle. You got to figure, you got to think about that for a long time. What is that mystic prophet teaching us? What is that? Faith is attachment is the Shekhinah. What that means is that the Shekhinah is the spirit of God that we have to emulate to thrive. It's like when you cleave to God, when you start acting out his ways in the world, that is emunah. When you trustly walk in God's ways, that is the definition of what emunah is, to cleave to God in Devekut, to be one with him in the world. That is emunah, faith in practice, in action. That's literally what the Hebrew word means. Is the shekhinah, is the spirit of God. It means that if we emulate that spirit, if that the shekhinah is the spirit of God that we emulate when we want to thrive. You want to live flourishing. You want to live that real, long-lasting happiness joyful happiness. Well, 
the spirit of God that we must emulate to thrive is the Shekhinah. And it's foolproof. You can't fake it because you're emulating it. You're one with it. You are being good because it's good. You're doing what's right because it's right. You're being truthful because it's true. And when you live that out, in the world, you start to thrive. You start to literally feel the spirit of Hashem in your life. And you think about that. It's like, what? That's really brilliant because we're talking about going back to Egypt. Israel is the exact opposite of Egypt in the most fundamental way. Ancient Egyptians with their mummies and their pyramids worshipped death. Israel worshipped life. The pyramids, if you see a picture of them, it's like they represent something. Look at the picture of a pyramid really quickly up here. You have a point at the top. Everything at the bottom is serving the one on the top, whether it be God, whether it be Pharaoh. Look at the Jewish symbol of God. The ultimate symbol of the Jewish people and the temple in Jerusalem is the menorah. Do you see the difference? There's one, it's like an inverted pyramid. The one on the bottom, the source of it all. We're not here to hold up God. God's purpose is to empower us, to nourish us, to grow us, to encourage us. Our soul, our flame rises up from the source. His purpose is to reveal our soul in the world and bring out the person he created us to be. That's what that ancient phrase means. The Shekinah is the spirit of God that we must emulate to thrive. So God's spirit is to rise up through that menorah and then shine those lights. It's the exact opposite of Egypt. And when we live with the spirit of God in our lives, we light up, period. We are that happiness. We are that joy. We thrive and we flourish. And all of it is encoded right there in the first prayer. That prayer that we give over in the first fruits offering is clearly not to change God. It's doing something to us. It's aligning us to be who we should be if we want to light up. So God's voice is calling us out of slavery, even if it's calling us out of slavery into the desert. <laughs> it's like calling us out of slavery while we're in the exile for a long time. That's really something to think about. And that's why the ancient texts speak about two levels. There's the physical slavery from Egypt and the spiritual slavery from ourselves, from our lusts, from our instincts, from our fears. And that's why the two holidays are so connected. We count 49 days from Passover to Shavuot, our physical liberation, our spiritual revelation. There's no real freedom without mental freedom, without emotional freedom, without spiritual freedom. And that's not just a cliche. Think about it. When you are free, but you only do what you have to do because you're addicted to that thing. Let's take an extreme example. You're a drug addict. Eventually, everything you do is in the service of getting that drug. You're a slave. You're not an individual. You're a tool to Pharaoh. Maybe it's not Pharaoh in Egypt, but you're, it's a new Pharaoh. You're, you're no less of a slave or a tool. You're a tool in the service of that addiction or of that lust. You're not really free. The first fruits offering is brought on Shavuot where we become spiritually free. The first fruits offering. It's like Israel. That's what we're called to be, to struggle with God. What does that mean? It means that the highest part inside of us, the flame, the soul that's inside of us is struggling and seeking and striving to get higher towards God. And when you enslave yourself, you subordinate your soul to a lower force and it's squandering your spirit. And the first fruits offering is teaching us how to liberate ourselves from that. And how do you know when your spirit is free? What is the essence of the first fruit offering? 
It's saying thank you. It is the ultimate expression of gratitude. The ultimate expression of my, my work and my toil and how much I appreciate it. How much I have to give thanks for. How much satisfaction I want to just drink it in. I'm not looking for the next pleasure in my life. I have what I have. I want to really cherish it. I want to enjoy it. I want to say thank you because our most natural state is a state of gratitude. And that's when we know we've removed all the shells, all the subordinate. When we finally feel thanks, we feel indebted. We want to give back our first fruits because who is the one that blessed us with that harvest? That ultimately is the dynamic. That was the purpose of it all, that we would receive the gift of life, that we would live with the Shekhinah in our life. We would emulate the spirit of God that would allow us to flourish. We're given the gift to choose. We can choose one pleasure. We can choose one happiness. And the Torah is teaching us this is the tree of life. This is the way to flourish. This I'll support you from the bottom and I will light you up like the menorah. But you're going to have to choose the tree of life. Choose the path of hard work, of character building, of truth. Happy is the man who acts in righteousness always. And from that, gratitude will come. And so with that, I want to enter into the new year, a new year of real lasting joy, a year of gratitude, a year that should be good, a year that should be sweet. And may everyone in this fellowship be blessed beyond measure. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha, ya'er Adonai panav, Elecha v'yichuneka, Isa Adonai panav elecha, v'yasem lecha shalom. Shalom, my friends. See you again before Rosh Hashanah. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.